Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28, and considering a sure priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20, give attention to God's holy word. As inasmuch as he was not made priests without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of, the better, of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, even as we just sang in Psalm 4, asking that you would shine your face upon us and that through the means which you have appointed, That in your wisdom you've seen fit to be the best means for feeding and blessing us in this life. That you would bless these means and show them truly to be your means by the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening us with the light of your countenance. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the Christian religion, there are many things that are debated. There are many points of doctrine that many on either side of the question debate and engage in what's called polemics. Now, polemics is a fancy word, not quite a $5 word, it's a $2 word. Polemics simply means engaging in a debate engaging in a formal argument. Our day is a day of debating, as I'm sure many of you are painfully aware. It's election season now, and the ads are out there debating different points. In the churches today, there are many things that are debated. And in the midst of these debates, we have to keep in mind a very important principle Now, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 7, chapter 7 is a polemic. Chapter 7 is the author debating a point of doctrine. 
as, we, as we've been seeing throughout this chapter, he is arguing and proving that the priesthood of Christ is better than the priesthood of Aaron. So he's engaged in a debate. There's a, a debate over doctrine that the author is engaged in. Now what's tempting for us in our flesh and our sinfulness is to mistake why it is so important to get doctrine right. You've seen the overreaction to this. You've seen the reaction that some people have to doctrine. What do most people say about doctrine? Doctrine divides. And so doctrine is not important. We don't need to divide. We just need to agree and uh, get along. Doesn't matter about the doctrines. On our side, though, you know, uh, Reformed Presbyterians who have a doctrinal confession, we do understand the importance of doctrine, but the danger for us is not downplaying correct doctrine. The danger for us is misunderstanding why doctrine has to be right. I can say from my own experience and my own life, I went through the cage stage. Perhaps I'm still in it at one level. Those of you who don't know what the cage stage is, it's when you first get a taste of Reformed doctrine. And you begin to realize that God is sovereign. Salvation is by His grace alone. And you become obnoxious. You, you become a pugilist for the Lord, seeking to prove that doctrine is right, not for the right reasons but seeking to prove that doctrine is right because it feels good to be right. It feels good to win. It's gratifying to win a debate. And so what we have to be careful of and what this passage is going to help us guard against is misunderstanding the reason that doctrine must be correct. And so I know you're waiting. Well, pastor, what is the reason? Why must doctrine be right? Why is it so important to answer this question correctly? The reason that doctrine must be correct is because only true doctrine saves. Only true doctrine benefits the soul. Only true doctrine edifies our hearts and minds, provides spiritual comfort, provides hope and assurance and endurance all the way unto Judgment Day. Only true doctrine saves and preserves the soul. That's why it must be correct. That's why it has to be right. Primarily because God's glory is on the line. But secondarily, the safety of your soul is on the line. You know, if you look through the history of the church and the many doctrines that have been debated, the best defenders, the ones who maybe did die for their doctrine or who were willing to die for their doctrines, are the ones who understood this. Athanasius is, is one of the greatest fathers of the ancient church. And he defended the doctrine of the Lord's incarnation. And his defense of the Lord's incarnation and the reason for it made its way into the Nicene Creed. I want to read a part of this for you, but I want you to pay attention 
to a very important statement that they make. Listen carefully. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now pay attention. Who? For us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. That's why the incarnation had to be defended. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 7, we have to get the priesthood right. Because what the author is going to show us in this passage is that the soul, your soul, my soul, can find a sure refuge only in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this for three reasons. Because of the oath, the office, and the offering. The soul can find a sure refuge only in the priesthood of Christ because of the oath, the office, and the offering. We're going to notice these three things in this passage. Verses 20 through 22 is the oath, the oath of the Lord, to be more explicit. Verses 23 through 25 is the office, the office of intercession, to be more specific. And then 26 through 28 is the offering, the offering for sin. Verses 20 through 22 is the oath. Verses 23 through 25 is the office. And verses 26 through 28 is the offering. Now keep in mind the context, as I've already reminded you, this is an extended polemic. It's an extended debate where the author is proving the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. In the beginning of this chapter, he's done it through biblical exposition. He has expounded the story of Melchizedek. In the second section that we looked at last time we were in the book of Hebrews, he does it through a bit of systematic theology. He interprets and applies the word of God. Now, He's going to prove the superiority of Christ's priesthood through what we can call technically experiential piety. Now, what do I mean by this? Experiential piety is what we found in the Nicene Creed, who for us and for our salvation. That the, the magnitude of these doctrines and truths are so important to get correct because it is only through these doctrines that we experience the blessing of God and find strength for our piety. Let me put it to you this way. What the author is going to talk about in this section is the red meat for your soul. You can get everything else right about the priesthood of Christ, but if you miss these things, your soul will not be edified. But if you feed on these things, if your piety is centered on these things, if your soul runs to Christ for refuge based upon these arguments, you will be fed. 
you will be edified. And you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first course, as it were, the first piece that the author gives us is the oath of the Lord. Now, this oath is going to come up later at the end of our passage. You'll notice in verse 28. He says, The law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now, there is an implied contrast here that we need to bring out to understand the force of what's being said here. Notice in verses 20, and t- uh, verse 20, he repeats the word oath, 20 and 21, he repeats the word oath three times, which means this idea is very important for what he's trying to prove to us. In the law, the law of Moses, the law of the priesthood of Aaron, God tells us what he wants men to do for various purposes, for various reasons. In the law of Moses, he appointed Aaron to be the high priest. He said, what I want you, Israel, to do is consecrate Aaron, set up the tabernacle worship. He's going to serve as the high priest. The purpose of that was to teach the people what we needed. We needed a priest who can sacrifice and enter the presence for us. But the law does not tell us what God is personally going to do. The law only tells us what our duty is. God's revealed will is the whole duty of mankind. And so Israel was duty-bound to appoint the high priest and to see that he worships according to the law. This is sometimes where we can get things, uh, uh, we can get things mixed up. The reason this contrast is brought out is because the law tells us what we are supposed to do, but God's decree or his oath, as it's referenced here, tells us what he himself is going to do. The oath tells us what God is going to accomplish. And in this passage, he's going to appoint the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest forever. Now, this contrast is important because sometimes, as legalists, as Pharisees, as Jews, it might be, in the spiritual sense, we can sometimes think that the law is the most important thing for what we expect God to do. We, We might look to the law and think, This is what God has told me to do, and it's through that law that I can find comfort and salvation for my soul. But part of the whole testimony of the book of Hebrews, the whole testimony of the New Testament, is that's not the purpose of the law. The law only teaches you that you need Christ. Here's another example, the law of Aaron. It teaches us that we need Christ But having learned that we need Christ, we need some foundation. We need something that is more certain than the law of Moses. And that is the personal oath of Jehovah. Jehovah himself. Notice how he cites Psalm 110. Christ was made a priest by an oath. When the Lord said, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. 
This oath swearing is an indication of what Jehovah is personally going to do for your salvation. And this is an anchor for our souls, brothers and sisters. As you well know, God has given his law to men, but his law is not always followed, is it? Just as we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the place of judgment, iniquity was there. In the highest offices of the land that should be promoting good and discouraging evil, we find wicked men occupying the office. Well, what are we supposed to do? I thought God said this is what he wanted. He did. But that doesn't tell you what he personally is going to accomplish. That's where the oath comes in. And the Lord has sworn, and notice the effect of this. Look at verse 22. He says, now by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A surety is somebody who agrees to pay the debts of somebody that cannot pay. A surety is somebody who is either wealthier, more powerful, or able to suffer a punishment, pay a debt, fulfill, pardon me, an obligation that the other party is unable to fulfill. Now, it says here that Jesus Christ, by this oath, has been made the surety of a better covenant. Now, there's debate over this. Is he a surety for God towards us? In other words, does the Lord Jesus Christ become incarnate so that on God's behalf he can plead with us and do what God said he would do? Or is the Lord Jesus Christ a surety on our behalf? Does he, in his work of mediation, take on a human nature and agree to fulfill the obligations that salvation requires of mankind because we are not able to pay the price? Or is it a little bit of both? I think the answer must clearly be the Lord Jesus Christ is a surety of the new covenant for our sakes. He agrees having been appointed thereto by the oath of the Father, to take up and pay the debts that you and I cannot pay. He is the surety of a better covenant. He fulfills what we cannot. Now, what does the new covenant require of you? What does God's covenant require? It requires absolute righteousness. It requires that your sins be paid for. And it requires that you be perfectly holy and sanctified in God's sight. That's what you must do to be saved. But if any of you have had your consciences awakened, you know, by experience, I am filthy and covered in sin. There is no way that I can pay this debt. There is no way I can live up to God's standards. You know, the approach of Judgment Day is a lot like a bill collector. All of us one day will have to pay the bill. Because the life that we live is a loan. We live on borrowed time. If you've ever had to suffer with bill collectors, you you know the bill is due. $10,000, $100,000, half a million dollars. You know you got to pay this bill, but you know you can't pay it. So what do you do? You shove it to the side. Then the phone calls start. You don't want to answer the phone. Then the knocking on the door starts. You don't want to answer the door. You want to avoid this because you know I cannot pay this. And every time you look at the bill, you see half a million dollars owed by Ben Castle, owed by whoever you are. 
and your name is right there on the paper. I'm on the hook for this, and I can't pay it. Through the Lord's oath, Christ being made the surety of the better covenant, he comes and, as it were, scratches out your name, and he writes, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, will pay this debt. His name appears on the bill, not yours. He takes up to pay what you cannot pay. And as the author says, he is now the surety of a better covenant. Notice, as I mentioned, this is because the Lord has sworn to do it. As Reformed Presbyterians, you well know, everything happens because God has decreed it to happen by his eternal decree. That doctrine is so important because our confidence in this covenant, our assurance that you will receive the blessings of salvation is not based upon my ability to pay. It's based upon the Lord's swearing, I will provide. The Lord Jesus Christ will pay your debts. Brothers and sisters, this is why you have to find refuge in Christ alone. This is why you must go to him and trust in him. You and I cannot pay these debts. And as I mentioned, everyone's bill will come due. Judgment day is coming, as we sang in Psalm 98. Because the Lord is coming, the judge of all the earth, he surely is coming to be. How are you going to pay this debt? It has to be paid through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you'll be paying it forever in hell under the judgment of God. But for those who do have refuge in Christ, he is your surety. Not only is he your surety by the oath, not only does his priesthood actually save because of the oath of the Lord, it also saves because of the office of intercession. This is what the author now goes into in verses 23 through 25. He mentions that in the priesthood of Aaron, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now he just notes this fact that in the line of Aaron, by necessity, Aaron was a priest for so many years, he died. Eleazar, priest, he dies. Ithamar, priest, dies. Phineas, priest, dies. All the way through. And so there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of high priests in the line of Aaron. And then we contrast this with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but he... Because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Because the Lord Jesus Christ never dies, his priesthood never changes. He was ordained as our high priest. He is appointed as our high priest. He continues forever as our high priest. And then in verse 25, he draws a conclusion from this. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession is the act of pleading on behalf of another, either in front of a judge or, in this case, in front of God, the judge of all the earth. An intercessor is someone who comes in between and pleads with the judge. Don't punish that one. 
This one belongs to me. I'm bringing his name or her name as a memorial before you. This one is saved. This one belongs to me. Now notice that the whole emphasis here on Christ's unending life, it all emphasizes this idea of intercession. It all, it all reduces down to this. That's the important part. And this is the comfort for our souls. You know, if um, you were to ask somebody to plead for you, uh, you know, I'll tell you, when, when one of my children was born, we had a frustrating experience. And, you know, Nathaniel was born, he had to be a C-section, he needed some medical care. But we, he was born on the weekend at the hospital. And so what happened was we, we ended up having three different pediatricians come and see him because by virtue of their scheduling, this one was on the clock on Friday, he's born, the new one for Saturday and Sunday, then he goes, and then we have a new one on Monday. We had three different pediatricians, and what I had to do was remind them of where his care was. I actually had to sort of tell them, like, well, the other guy didn't say that. I had to keep reminding them because they kept changing over. Likewise with the priesthood of Christ. He never goes off the clock. He is always pleading for you before the Father. He never leaves that place. He lives forever to intercede for you, no matter what you're going through at this time. He is always there pleading with the Father, and he remembers everything that you've committed to him. He's the same Jesus that saved you initially. He's the same Jesus that answered your prayers long ago. And he's the same Jesus who is interceding for you in the presence of the Father, continually and perpetually on behalf of his people. Now, here's why this matters. You and I are not worthy to pray. In ourselves, our prayers do not gain access to the Father. The Father is of such holiness that nobody can enter his presence unless one is of equal holiness. Unless one can stand the gaze of his glory and not be consumed by it. Well, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an advocate who has entered into the holy place. He's entered into the place of heaven never to be ejected. He never has to leave and re-cleanse himself. He's in the holy place and he is there pleading on behalf of you. You know, brothers and sisters, sometimes you and I don't want to pray. Sometimes things get so dark that you may be tempted to think prayer is useless. Sometimes you may think that something has happened in your life because you forgot to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ never forgets to pray. In fact, he's engaged in incessant prayer for you right now. Pleading with the Father on your behalf. And so according to the office of intercession, our refuge is only in the priesthood of Christ. We might think of this as something like this. When judgment day comes and the courtroom is set, Jehovah will be sitting in judgment upon all mankind. And as they stand before his judgment, 
Nobody has a plea that can withstand that judgment. But those for whom Christ has interceded, those for whom Christ has died, Christ enters the courtroom and pleads with the Father, forgive him because of my righteousness. Bless him because of what I have done. Everything that the Lord Jesus Christ does, as the Nicene Creed says, is for us men and for our salvation. Well, not only according to the oath, not only according to this office of intercession, but according to his offering for sin is why we find refuge in him. The author now in verse 26 goes on to expand uh, on the priesthood of Christ. And he says, for such a priesthood was, for such a high priest, sorry, was fitting for us. Notice how he introduces this idea. He's saying that this is the kind of priest we need. This is the kind of religion that saves men's souls. This is exactly what mankind stood in need of. Now we need to maybe back up a second and talk about the things that we need. You know, there are many gospels out there. And every gospel that comes to us comes to us presenting a solution to a problem. Every gospel comes and says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you join our church, if you do these things, then you'll receive this benefit. And they have a certain kind of salvation that they present to us. And many people buy in to these false gospels. Because many people do not understand what the soul of man actually needs. The soul of man doesn't need prosperity. The soul of man doesn't need popularity. The soul of man doesn't even need profound philosophical knowledge. That's not what our souls need. Our souls need the exact thing that Christ provides. That's the point of verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us. And now he's going to talk about how Christ is fit for us. Notice there's two parts to this. First, he is perfectly sinless. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. When it says that the Lord Jesus Christ is holy, that means he is perfectly set apart for God's purposes. Holiness means to be set apart. It means to be unique in the sense of set apart for God's work. Christ is perfectly holy. He had no self-centered motives. When he came to do, he came, as it says in the Gospels, only to do the will of the Father. He was perfectly holy. Notice it says that he is also harmless, which means that in reference to God, he only sought to do the Father's will. And in the reference to men... He never committed any sin against another person. He never caused harm through sinning. He was harmless. Holy, harmless, and undefiled. Even though he was in the world, even though he sat and drank with prostitutes and tax collectors, 
He was never defiled by the filth of the world. He is perfectly holy. Now, what's the reason for this? We're going to go into a little bit of doctrine here. But I assure you, this doctrine is the salvation of your souls. Notice the next phrase that he uses. He was separate from sinners. Why do you and I sin? Why do you and I become defiled? Why do you and I cause harm one to another when we sin? Why are you and I, in ourselves, unholy? It's because we have a sinful nature. Through Adam, those of us that have come by ordinary generation have inherited his sinfulness. And so, from a bitter seed, only bitter fruit can come. This is why we sin, because in Adam we've been given this sinful nature. Well, the author here says that the Lord Jesus is separate from sinners. He is distinct from the mass of sinful humanity. He does not have a sinful nature. He was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so he is separate from the line of Adam. He did not have a human father the way that you and I do. And not having a human father, he did not inherit the sinful nature. Now here's the next step in this doctrine. I think we all agree on the sinless conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what this means is not only that the Lord Jesus Christ never committed a sin, it means that it was impossible for him to commit a sin. Grapes do not produce apples. It's impossible because they are of a different nature. The Lord Jesus Christ being conceived separately from sinners it was impossible for him to sin. It was never going to happen, even though he was tempted, just as you and I are tempted. It was impossible for him to fall under the wiles of Satan. Now, why does this matter? Well, as the author says, such a high priest is fitting for us. Such a savior is what we needed. Such a deliverer is what mankind needed. We needed one stronger than we are who could overcome sin, death, and the devil. And only this holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners high priest could do it. And he has done it. That's what the next phrase deals with. It says he's separate from sinners and he has become higher than the heavens. Because this high priest has defeated all of our enemies, sin, death, and the devil, God has now exalted him up to the highest place, higher even than the heavens themselves, to intercede for you and I, to plead on our behalf with the Father, to fulfill what Aaron's priesthood only symbolized, you remember that the height of the Aaronic liturgy in their worship services, the height of the Aaronic worship was that after the sacrifices were offered, only one time a year, the high priest would go into the holy place. And what the high priest was doing in the holy place, he bore the names of Israel on his shoulders and on his chest. 
and he offered holy incense that represented the prayers of the saints in the very presence of God. That was symbolic of what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. Not in the pattern of the earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself, Christ has entered and done exactly what you and I needed to save our souls. Brothers and sisters, let me put it to you this way. Never forget, what you need is reconciliation with God, your creator. Nothing less. You don't need prosperity. You don't need peace and ease. You don't need comfort and health. You don't need any of those things. What you do need is to know that God is for you. And he's completely reconciled to you. In your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is. And you are. For such a high priest is what we needed. Now he goes on to explain how this was accomplished. Christ in his person, holy, harmless, has been made higher than the heavens. Well, how is this achieved? It's through the offering for sin. Verse 27, he says, this one, he's describing not just the person now, but now the work of this high priest. He did not need to daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The author is going to go on later in the book to tell us that where a repetition of offerings is, daily sacrifices, there is a reminder that sin has not been dealt with. There's a reminder that sin still remains because I've got to offer it again. You know, my wife is a fantastic cook. But one of the things that I'm reminded of when she cooks is that we have to clean the dishes again, which is a reminder that we're going to have to eat again. The physical body is not ever going to eat its last meal because you're always going to have to wash the dish. Likewise, with your sins, under the administration of Aaron, with the repetition of the sacrifices, it was a reminder that you're going to need more sacrifices. This hasn't been accomplished yet. Well, the author then says... Christ is not like that. One, he didn't have to offer up something for his own sins. And two, he only had to offer up one sacrifice. As he says, it was done once for all when he offered up himself. Understand, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ became incarnate for us men and for our salvation. He took on a true human nature. And he lived a perfect, sinless, and righteous life. And he obeyed his Father in everything. And he lived this perfect human life so that he could offer it up on the cross. Notice what he says. He offered up himself. Isn't this amazing? The, the, the high priests of Aaron, they, they may have loved the people. I'm sure that they had a lot of compassion upon their brothers of Israel. But the high priest, because of his sinfulness, had to offer up animals. He had to offer up goats and bulls. He had to offer up something else. But the Lord Jesus Christ does the thing that no one else could. 
You remember in the book of Exodus when Aaron made the golden calf. And the Lord comes down and says, I'm going to destroy this nation, Moses. They have broken the covenant. I'm done with them. I'll start over with you. Moses, typologically, so symbolically representing the Lord Jesus Christ, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, 32, pardon me. Exodus 32, verse 30. Exodus 32, verse 30. The Lord is about to destroy the people, and Moses, representing, he's a foreshadowing of Christ. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses is going to intercede on behalf of the people. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive them their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of the book which you have written. Moses is attempting to offer his own life for the sake of Israel. He says, Lord, forgive these people, and if you cannot forgive them, take my life for their lives. Verse 33, the Lord says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. You can't do this, Moses, because you're a sinner just like them. I can't accept your sacrifice, but he does accept the sacrifice of Christ because he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And he offered up himself once for all. This is why we find a sure refuge in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our author concludes by bringing this contrast out one more time that he's been operating with in this whole passage. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. They die, they have their own sins. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. And so because the high priest has been perfected, salvation is secure because he is the surety of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice, in the preceding passage and in this passage, the same act of piety is mentioned. Verse 19, the author says, The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope perfects everything through which we draw near to God. And then again in verse 25. Therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. For he ever lives and intercedes for them. Brothers and sisters, if you would understand doctrine, 
If you would love the truths of Scripture, you must live the truths of Scripture. You must apply the truths of Scripture. You must, as I teach my children, to appreciate the cross, you have to know how to enjoy the cross. And the way that we enjoy the cross is by going to God through Jesus, is by praying to our Father in heaven. And as you do that, and as you grow in your salvation, you will find heaven and earth may pass away, but I will never surrender the truth of Christ because it is the truth of Christ by which I am saved. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that you would look upon him as you have sworn, that you would hear his intercessions, and that his blood would indeed be effectual for our salvation. We ask you, O Lord, to fill us with your spirit that we may appreciate these things and that we may pray these things and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We need growth. We need security. We thank you that you've provided it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.